The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Whenever you talk about a surveillance technology, you have to first talk about, is it efficacious? Because if it isn't efficacious, then you don't even have to debate whether or not you're going to use it. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 10th, 2021. The going dark debate, which concerns how society and the technology industry should address the challenges law enforcement faces in investigating crime due to the increasing use of encryption on mobile devices and by communication platforms and services, was in the news again because of Apple's recent proposal to engage in client-side scanning. Apple planned to scan iPhones for child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, before such images were uploaded to iCloud. Prior to Apple's announcement, however, a distinguished group of computer scientists and engineers were already working on a paper to explain the security and privacy risks of client-side scanning. The paper, which they have now released, is called Bugs in Our Pockets, The Risks of Client-Side Scanning. To talk about this most recent development in the going dark debate, I sat down with two of the paper's authors, Susan Landau, Bridge Professor of Cybersecurity and Policy at the Fletcher School and at the School of Engineering, Department of Computer Science at Tufts University, and Ross Anderson, Professor of Security Engineering at the University of Cambridge and at the University of Edinburgh. We discussed some of the most significant privacy and security risks client-side scanning creates, why client-side scanning requires a different analysis from other aspects of the discussion about government access to encrypted data, and why the authors of the paper consider client-side scanning to be a dangerous technology. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 10th. Susan Landau and Ross Anderson on the going dark debate and the risks of client-side scanning. Susan, Can you explain what client-side scanning is and how it intersects with the broader discussion that is commonly referred to as the going dark debate? Sure, Stephanie, I'd be happy to. Let me start first with the going dark debate, which is the whole issue of both devices being encrypted, so hard to unlock without the owner or the user doing the unlocking, and communications being what's called end-to-end encrypted. That is, from the sender, from the speaker to the receiver, anybody who does an eavesdropping, who wiretaps in the middle, only gets white noise and can't decrypt. And so law enforcement over the last, you could say, 10, 20, 30 years, pick your number, has been complaining that it is going dark increasingly. So client-side scanning is a technique that purports to both enable privacy for users while allowing law enforcement to scan and find targeted content, in particular child sexual abuse material, which has also been increasing in recent years. And the way client-side scanning works is that prior to communications or data coming off the device, for example, photos going to a cloud server, the data will be scanned to check whether or not it matches targeted content. So for example, in the United States, 
the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NICMIC, has a collection, a very large collection of abused children, photos of children being abused. And the photos would be scanned prior to being uploaded to the cloud. That way, if there's no match, nothing happens to the user's data. Nobody finds out anything about the user's data. If there is a match, then depending on exactly how the system is designed, uh, law enforcement will be informed. And so client-side scanning is supposed to, and I emphasize supposed to, provide privacy for the user while accessing targeted data for law enforcement. So Ross, how do we distinguish between what is the client and what is the server? And, and hasn't there been ongoing scanning on servers? For some years now, a number of online services have been doing um, scanning of material that users share through them with other users, looking for a variety of bad things. They've been looking not just for child sex abuse images, but for incitement to terrorism, uh, for animal cruelty, for prohibited political speech, and in the case of Facebook, even for nudity. Now, the rules are set by different platforms according to their terms of service. And from the platform's point of view, the incentive for doing central scanning is often brand protection as much as anything else, because services that live by advertising revenue don't want their advertisers' copy to be displayed next to nudity or animal cruelty. And on the back of this, there is some scanning for law enforcement purposes, particularly for sex abuse material of various kinds uh, and for stuff relating to terrorism recruitment. How effective this is, is of course another matter entirely. Susan, you and your co-authors identify two different technologies that can be used for client sign scanning, perceptual hatching and machine learning. What are those technologies and how do they circumvent encryption? Well, the circumvention of encryption happens because the technologies are applied before there's any encrypting of the communication to, prior to leaving the device. So it's not that the technologies circumvent encryption, it's that the whole system circumvents encryption by working on the device before the content is encrypted and sent off. The way the two technologies work is perceptual hashing computes a what we call a hash, but it's a particular kind of hash that if you change the photo a little bit, you change the color of the background, you take the, the shadows in the background and you make them so that they appear a little less strong and so on, that the hash, that numerical sign of the, of the content will not change. And so it prevents people who have CSAM from changing the the content and making it appear that it is not CSAM. That's how perceptual hashing works. Machine learning looks at lots and lots of data to figure out the patterns in the data. So we use machine learning all over the place. We use machine learning to recognize stop signs and to recognize traffic lights and to recognize all sorts of data to enable us to be able to think about doing uh, driverless driving. But here, the the idea of using uh, machine learning is for things like perhaps recognizing nude photos or nude photos of children being used, then being exchanged with people who then try to groom the children for, for using them sexually. So they're two different kinds of techniques, but they don't circumvent encryption. Rather, they're used before the data is encrypted. So although Intel and law enforcement agencies have been lobbying for client-side scanning since 2018. Apple was the first to propose a concrete design that was at least released publicly. But you and your co-authors were working on a paper about the privacy and security risks of client-side scanning well before Apple's announcement. You say that client-side scanning is a phase change in the debate about law enforcement access to encrypted communications that requires a different analysis. Indeed, you argue that client-side scanning by its nature creates serious security and privacy risks for all society, while the assistance it can provide for law enforcement 
is at best problematic. Before we delve into these arguments, Ross, can you give us some perspective about what is happening in Europe? While we've predominantly been talking about using client-side scanning for the detection of child sexual exploitation materials in the U.S., there are potentially other broader uses currently being contemplated in Europe. Yes, that's right. The um, first indications that we had of interest in client-side scanning came in 2018, where people from GCHQ, Britain's intelligence agency, were talking about it as a means of defeating end-to-end encryption in WhatsApp. And, And then the topics of interest were not just sex abuse material, but also terrorist recruitment. The thing moved on to the political stage under the German presidency of the European Union, where there was a public announcement that some technical means had to be found to deal with end-to-end encryption in the context of um, sex abuse material. And there was a leak of a technical discussion document from inside the European Commission, which showed that the intelligence agencies and some big tech companies had been looking at technical options starting off with something uh, to use against sex abuse material, uh, but with the understanding that doing something about terrorism recruitment could be next, you know, once the door had been broken down. And it was this leak that galvanized us um, into action because of the fact that in the European Union, there is supposed to be a, a draft regulation issued for consideration by the European Parliament next month in December, to deal with um, sex abuse. And so there was the anticipation that this would be used as an opportunity to try and strong arm the tech industry into introducing client-side scanning. Turning to the privacy and security risks of client-side scanning, you and your co-authors raise a number of different issues with respect to the implications of moving scanning from the server to the client. Susan, with this move, what kinds of abuses can take place and by whom? So how many days are you giving me to answer this question, Stephanie? (laughs) Um, So as Ross pointed out earlier, we have server-side scanning. But server-side scanning, the user makes a choice that they're going to put data on the server. Few of us in the modern world walk around without phones, without phones that carry everything from photos and communications with our loved ones to communications with business to notes about what we're going to do to our calendar and so on. They've become our diaries, our maps. Everything we do is recorded on these devices. And so we have to think about client-side scanning in that context. The problem with client-side scanning is manifold. First of all, as we describe in the paper, there are ways to do false positives and false negatives for both perceptual hashing and machine learning. So false positives would likely trigger a law enforcement investigation of someone. Now, Apple's design has been careful, but even the hint that somebody well-known is being investigated, and we know from multiple examples that even when nothing is found on somebody's phone and somebody's computer, the news that that they're being investigated often comes out to their detriment. So the false positives are very dangerous. The false negatives, of course, mean that the bad guys will be sharing CSAM and perhaps other targeted content, but twiddling it just a little so it doesn't get picked up by the system. So that's an issue about efficacy. And whenever you talk about a surveillance technology, and this is an extremely powerful surveillance technology because it's on everybody's phones, whenever you talk about a surveillance technology, you have to first talk about, is it efficacious? Because if it isn't efficacious, then you don't even have to debate whether or not you're going to use it. And so what you're talking about here in client-side scanning is putting on what is essentially a bulk surveillance tool onto everybody's phone. And then it doesn't satisfy all kinds of security principles and policy principles that we should have on a surveillance tool. It's not limited to criminals. That is, unlike a wiretap, which in the United States, as you know, 
law enforcement has to go through a lot of hoops to get a wiretap warrant. Here, the client-side scanning would be on the device, and it would be scanning everybody. It's not auditable by the user. There's no transparency, evaluation, or oversight by the public. There isn't specificity. We don't know that it can't be repurposed, because all you have to do is change the list of targeted content. And it's not just a government that could do so, but also a bad guy in the middle, whether an insider or somebody who's hacked the system. I could go on, but I think you decided not to give me a couple of years to answer this question. So I'll stop here, but answer more if you like. Thank you. And and I, I will say that all of the points that you've touched upon and more are covered in bugs in our pockets. So So people are encouraged to read that paper. And in fact, Susan, I believe you you did a, a specific post about the paper on lawfare. Yes, I did. Ross, let me turn to you. Some of what Susan talked about, uh, various kinds of attacks, certainly are not new on the server side of things. So what happens when we bring these scanning technology to the client side of things? Are there uh, new advantages for adversaries? When you're doing the scanning on the client side, then it becomes an awful lot easier for the opponent to try various tweaks to see what will either cause a false negative or a false positive. This affects both perceptual hashing algorithms um, and machine learning models. Now, if the filter is sitting on a server, on a Google server farm or a Facebook data center or an IBM or whatever, then it's possible to detect if somebody's trying to explore and reverse engineer your model. However, if that model is available on billions of devices out there in the field, including not just iPhones, but Androids and many other devices that are very vulnerable to reverse engineering, then the bad guys are going to figure out pretty quickly how it works and how you can tweak stuff to get past it. Now, there's a huge research literature on adversarial machine learning and an adequate research literature on how you go about tweaking perceptual hash functions. And this means that it is going to be fairly straightforward for the bad guys to either create content that will go past the filters undetected or to take innocuous content and cause it to give false alarms. Now, to their credit, the engineers at Apple are quite aware of this. And after they produced their design and people immediately reverse engineered the uh, neural hash algorithm that was already in iPhones and showed how to create pre-images to it, they said, well, that's not going to work because first um, you have to get um, 30 alarms before the uh, before Apple will be notified. And second, the next thing that happens is that Apple employees will look at it to make sure it is actually an abuse image and not just a, an image of a tortoise that's been tweaked to be misrecognized. But this is just you know, a symptom of a larger problem because all you can basically do with a system like this is to have an early warning system in somebody's phone or speaker or watch or whatever, which you know, like the wake word in your smart TV or your speaker at home says, the user has just said something of interest and then passes that on to the server for more detailed examination and then perhaps on to a human for more detailed examination. And so what you've actually created is an infrastructure whereby you have scanning going on in every device, in every inhabited space of the planet, which is then alerting Um, servers, which in turn alert law enforcement listeners. Now, that's not the sort of infrastructure we should be trying to build, you know, unless perhaps you're working for the Ministry of State Security in China. You and your co-authors, Susan, raise a number of additional practical objections in addition to the number of privacy and security concerns that you and Ross have been discussing. One of the things you talk about is fairness and discrimination. Why are you concerned about the concepts of fairness and discrimination with respect to client-side scanning? So with client-side scanning, uh, we know that machine learning can be biased. Everybody by now, at least in this audience, has heard about the bias in facial recognition systems. 
but bias creeps into machine learning everywhere because it's based on a set of training data. And the training data may be biased because of historical collection. So when you take the training data, you build a machine learning tool, and then it works on somebody's device, you're carrying forward all sorts of bias. And this is particularly hidden bias in this case, because as I noted a few minutes ago, we don't have oversight into how the machine learning program works on the client side device. We don't have insight into the training data. So we can only test the machine learning by poking at it in the way that Ross mentioned earlier. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily tell us where the bias is. And that's very dangerous when you're putting it on uh, machines that'll be used by billions of people. And Susan, that seems to nicely perhaps segue into another practical objection that you and your co-authors raise, and that's the idea of barriers to scale. We start using something before it's known whether it will work at scale. That's right. So years ago in the crypto wars of the 1990s, there was the proposal for key escrow, and the National Academies put forth a report on encryption policy. And one of the important points it made was that if there was going to be a key escrow system, that is the key was going to be escrowed and stored somewhere, the particular proposal that had existed at the time was the clipper chip, which split the key and stored it with agencies of the U.S. government. But if there was going to be a key escrow system before it was launched for the public or before it was required for the public, you needed to run it at scale and see what the problems were. So right now, well, we talked, Ross talked about the, the papers that about adversarial attacks on perceptual hashing and machine learning. Right now, there hasn't been that much activity from criminal groups and nation states using such attacks. But if you put those techniques on billions of phones, then you will run into the problem that, that nation states and criminal groups will start attacking in that way, and everybody is at risk. So... What you have with client-side scanning is it provides adversaries, including governments, economies of scale and an ability to reconfigure the systems to accomplish all sorts of surveillance. And so before you were to launch such a tool, and there's very strong arguments against launching it because it is a bulk surveillance tool. But before you even do that, you have to think about whether or not it's efficacious. And we've made a very strong argument that it's very unlikely to be. Another practical objection that you and your co-authors raise is is that of jurisdictional issues. And what I took that to mean is that different governments have different demands. And that variety of demands, if you will, illustrates a lack of agreement on what problem needs solving. Does that complicate the scanning solution further? That's a very good question, Stephanie, because back in the crypto wars of the 1990s, the difficulty of making um, government access to keys work for all actors was one of the things which caused the key escrow um, proposals of the time to fail. It was bad enough introducing the clipper chip for use in America so that all Americans' communications could be wiretapped by the FBI. But how do you deal with 200 countries, each of whom have got their own sovereignty issues? Now, you've got exactly the same with client-side scanning uh, because America has got its list of bad things. And at the moment, child sex uh, abuse material in still images is what the American authorities appear to focus on. However, That isn't the case in Europe, because Europe explicitly right now wants to deal with sex abuse, not just in still images, but also in video and in uh, chat messages. And this is actually a bit more up to date than the US position, because the latest research by Google in 2018 uh, discloses that over 80% of the actual child sex abuse material that they end up blocking now comes in the form of streaming video 
um, from low-income, poorly governed countries. So if you can't deal with streaming video, you're not dealing with most of the problem. And then, of course, uh, once you have got a mechanism in the iPhone, which will enable still images and perhaps also streaming video to be dealt with, you then come across the censorship demands of other governments. Turkey, for example, makes a lot of the fact that it's uh, illegal to criticize uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of their republic. And in practice, they also crack down on material that criticizes the current president. Uh, India cracks down on material that criticizes the governing party. Australia has um, brought lawsuits against uh, journalists for publishing images of war crimes committed by Australian troops. In China, of course, there's great sensitivity about the Dalai Lama and perhaps even a photograph of His Holiness the Pope would get you into trouble if it were to be found on your handset. You know, every government on earth is going to want to customize the block list to its own local laws and preferences and priorities. And then the genie is completely out of the bottle. I'd like to add here that when we talk about the government There are, of course, different agencies within the government, and not all agencies see the going dark problem the same way that some of the European governments, the UK government, seems to see. In particular, over the 20 years since the US government loosened export controls on encryption, which took 10 years for encryption to really start to happen in devices and in communications, but over those 20 years, The criticism about end-to-end encryption and then about locked devices has come from law enforcement. It hasn't come from national security in the United States. So there are different perceptions of what makes us secure and what's important to secure, even within government agencies. And, And I presume that therefore makes it very difficult for those responsible for making a system as secure as possible those differences make it very challenging because we don't exactly know what the problem is. So we we don't know all of the variables with respect to how to best secure the system. That's absolutely true. And, And the way security engineers talk is you don't build vulnerabilities into a system. If you go back and think about the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, which said build wiretapping into a switch, the security engineers warned that that was creating a security hole, and indeed it's been exploited. The most well-known case is the the Greek wiretapping case in 2004-05, but there are other cases as well. There is a, a very broad and dire legacy of things that have broken as a result of the crypto wars in the 1990s. Um, for example, the limitation of key lengths to 40 bits and then to 48 bits led to the disaster with Philips MyFair Classic, the consequence of which is that a very large number of building door lock systems in commercial and other buildings around the world are now insecure. And remediating these is so expensive that even to this day, many buildings are basically wide open to high-tech burglary. Another example is remote key entry systems in motor vehicles, which again were burdened with weak cryptography back in the 1990s. And um, this is one of the things that is driving a rising wave of car theft in Europe. So mandating the introduction of vulnerabilities now can impose significant economic and indeed national security costs down the road, not just for years, but for decades to come. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us 
Spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code 
Lawfare 20. So, Susan, near the end of the paper, you and your co-authors sort of produce your ultimate analysis and opinion about client-side scanning, at, at least as it has been proposed so far. And and you make the determination that it cannot be deployed safely. And you refer back to both a number of design principles and policy principles that others have worked on. I believe you may have been involved in some of those other working groups. Could you talk a little bit about that? So I will start with the the technical ones, although I suspect Ross may also want to fill in on some of those. On the technical side, one wants to think about how one designs a system to minimize risk. And so what you do is you, the design principles include you make the system as simple and small as possible so it's easy to validate and test. It has to be fail-safe so that access decisions are made on permission rather than an exclusion. That is, allowing a software program to see content on the device should be by permission rather than by lack of permission. And client-side scanning is very dangerous that way. You make it an open design. This is a principle that goes back to the late 1800s where the the thinking of Kirchhoff, of August Kirchhoff, was that in a crypto system, the algorithm will leak. What you do is you keep the keys secure and only the users know the keys. But more generally, the design of a system should not be secret. And part of that is, of course, only by exposing the design do we find flaws in it. And we have even seen that in NSA designs. The Clipper chip had a flaw in it that that our colleague Matt Blaze found in which it was a, it was possible to fool the chip into thinking it was encrypting properly. And it was, but there was an easy way to do a brute force search of the crypto space. We also looked at a number of policy principles and those policy principles came out of a Carnegie study that came out in 2019 in which a number of senior people, people who had been in senior positions in the U.S. government, many of whom are now back in senior positions in the U.S. government, participated. And some of those principles I mentioned earlier, that, for example, law enforcement utility, that the system should produce something useful for law enforcement, and it solves a legitimate and demonstrated lawful law enforcement problem. What Ross and I have talked about several times now during this podcast is the business of false negatives and false positives and how efficacious is client-side scanning. There should be due authorization. That is, the use of this capability is should only be possible under duly authorized legal process, for example, by obtaining a warrant. But the problem with client-side scanning is that client-side scanning runs on everybody's phone, innocent and not alike. We talked in the report about specificity. Accessing a phone, the technology should only be able to access a a single phone, not everybody's phone, but in fact, client-side scanning fails there. Client-side scanning fails all the specificity type principles that we put into the Carnegie report, which is why my co-authors and I said, this is really a bulk surveillance tool and therefore exceedingly dangerous. But I'm sure Ross will want to add more on the security principles and perhaps also on the policy principles. Thank you, Susan. Well, there are very deep issues uh, of, of human rights at the bottom of this, because one of the things that makes our societies different from most societies that have existed up until now is that we live under the rule of law. We've got separation of powers. We've got democracy. We've got mechanisms to ensure that the king doesn't abuse his power so as to stay in power forever. And this means that there are some things that law enforcement simply may not do. Now, human rights means rights for terrorists and paedophiles, to put it bluntly. Now, what sort of rights do terrorists have? Well, to begin with, they have the right not to be tortured because the prohibition on torture is universal and absolute. And when this was broken um, in the couple of years after 9-11 by a previous administration, 
this left America not only with severe humiliation and loss of credibility around the world, but with an intractable problem in the form of a number of people at Guantanamo Bay who now cannot be tried and whom you do not want to release. What sort of rights do paedophiles have? Well, in the UK, there is a right as a UK citizen or resident not to be subjected to bulk wiretapping for any purpose. Bulk wiretapping is not allowed against UK persons. And therefore, it is not right to create an architecture where the only thing that prevents the bulk wiretapping um, of part of the population is essentially administrative fiat or the will or determination of various tech companies to go to court. So in a very deep sense, the introduction of client-side scanning is fundamentally against principles of human rights. And it should not be discussed in utilitarian terms. It should not be discussed simply in terms of whether law enforcement gets enough advantage in a few small cases, a few marginal cases, to put everybody else in harm's way. And this is particularly the case when you talk about scanning for static images, because as we all know now, the bulk of the abuse material is video streaming material um, coming from a, a number of problematic countries overseas. And if the task is to deal with that, then probably technology isn't the solution. The solution may be working with the governments of the countries concerned to strengthen their police forces, uh, to cut down on corruption, uh, and perhaps to trace the money so that the gangs who organize these dreadful activities are brought to justice. So the going dark debate you know, was back in the news again. You all happened to be writing your timely paper, but it came back into the news because of Apple's proposal. And at the end of your paper, you use all of the principles you have laid out to kind of really grapple with Apple's proposal. You seem to feel that Apple has tried to address some of the policy and security concerns that you happen to raise, but you're ultimately not convinced that even Apple's proposal is ready for prime time. So I wrote in Lawfare in August when Apple's proposal came out that one of the terrible things the idea does or the the technology they were proposing, they didn't actually launch it, they announced it and they've taken a pause on deploying it. But one of the terrible things that it does is it normalizes the idea of surveillance. And that's a terrible thing for any democratic society. What we say in the paper is, as we went through all the technical objections we had and some of the policy ones, that Apple has done a sensible and technically quite apt way of dealing with them. But it doesn't answer the the questions that that Ross put so strongly right at the end of what he was saying a few minutes ago, which is ultimately this is a bulk surveillance technology. And that's not how democratic societies work. And it's not how societies who, who respect human rights work. One can see this in a number of ways as a logical conclusion of a progression in wiretap capability that we've seen since about the 1970s. Uh, Back then, if the agencies wanted to tap a phone, uh, they went to an exchange and they attached a tape recorder to it. Then as things were digitized, they were able to hoover up stuff remotely. There were then several generations of improvement of this technology until we see the kind of stuff that Ed Snowden uh, taught us about in 2013. There, however, the collection is very much limited and very much targeted. It's targeted either on the special selectors of things that go past um, or various things that are easy to spot. Uh, And it's limited to data in transit. Now, the next logical step, as the scale of human use of information increases, is to try to do the collection at the endpoints rather than at the midpoints, whether those midpoints are transatlantic cables or whether they're Gmail servers. And so we have seen uh, public declarations by various agency chiefs, including one that we cite in our paper, where the director of GCHQ said it would be great to have AI everywhere looking at everything. And, you know, that is the, the direction of travel that 
a number of people in the intelligence and law enforcement community would like to take. Now, that is not something for which I believe there would be public tolerance where the issue is widely understood by the public, because what it basically amounts to is having a spy in your pocket. It means having a spy in your home. It means that as we see the spread of uh, voice interfaces and gesture interfaces, there are going to be microphones and cameras in every inhabited space on the planet. Now, are these simply going to be trying to figure out whether you want a device to wake up and do something, or are they going to be scanning what people do, what people say, uh, for something that is of interest to the government? If it is the latter, then we're going to end up in a very, very bad place, because by feature creep one step at a time, we'll get to somewhere that you know, our kids will deeply regret and you know, will wish that we had somehow managed to stop. And Susan and Ross, for all of the reasons you just discussed, you you reject the idea that this this is a good compromise position with respect specifically to addressing the the spread of CSAM. You know, some have argued that because it doesn't technically compromise encryption, and it is at least as Apple has presented it only targeting content for which there is no legal justification to possess, share, or distribute, that, you know, it's it's certainly better than introducing vulnerabilities into systems in the way that was being proposed in backdoors. But I, I take it you both very much reject the notion that this is a compromised position. So I will note that CSAM has been around for a long time. Its use is increasing, or its abuse is increasing, however you want to put it. But it's been around a long time. It was not an argument that law enforcement, at least national law enforcement, chose to put forth until very recently. And I think some of the Lawfare listeners will note that a couple of years ago, Jim Baker, who'd been general counsel under Comey, and general counsel under Comey at the time of the Apple FBI fight over the locked phone from the San Bernardino terrorist, Jim wrote a piece in which he said, rethinking encryption, he believes that that because of the national security risks, business risks, and so on, that there is a strong argument for having encryption. Jim was one of the people on the Carnegie Report, and which the Carnegie Report said, let's look first at a problem that is potentially solvable and that is important to law enforcement. And in the United States, that problem uh, was locked phones. U.S. law enforcement has been objecting to the phones that are impossible for them or seemingly impossible. It seems that Celebrite and Greg Key can open them. But law enforcement had been objecting to the to locked phones. We went through an analysis and we said, let's see first if there's a technical solution for the phones that satisfies these principles. And if so, and it's one that doesn't introduce insecurities in the, in the way that I've previously described. If so, then we can think about legislation, not before. And that group, which included a former deputy director of the NSA, a former general counsel of the FBI, and so on, that group said, let's look at phones first. All of a sudden, law enforcement, as in the reports that, that and, and papers that Ross was referring to in Europe and things that are coming out of FBI in the United States, has been pushing on CSAM and arguing we have to reopen this other issue. First of all, as Ross has pointed out, the Apple solution and the, the client-side scanning is not going to handle the videos. Uh, which constitute a particularly dangerous and insidious form of abuse. It handles the known photos in NCMEC, but of the 16 million, I believe it's 16 million reports that come from Facebook annually, a tiny, tiny percentage of those cases actually get prosecuted. So what we're seeing is a blowing up of a criminal issue for which the solution doesn't match the problem, but the solution, and I'm putting solution in quotes, the solution creates tremendous problems for human rights and, in fact, for national security, public safety. 
and so on, because it makes our devices into devices that can be surveilled by others. Well, yes, I um, entirely second that. Uh, everybody who's been following this debate since Crypto War One knows that CSAM is just a pretext that is trotted out when there isn't a better pretext. Um, it first came out in about 1995 during the beginning of the dot-com boom. Um, it was waved around a bit. It was completely forgotten about after 9-11 because then terrorism was what everybody was interested in. And after Abu Ghraib, terrorism wasn't quite as convincing anymore. And in the leaked document from the European Union of two years ago, it said more or less explicitly that you do this for CSAM first and for terrorism second, because very, very few lawmakers are prepared to argue um, against uh, tighter controls on CSAM. Now, if lawmakers really did care about child protection, then there's a number of hard questions should be asked. First, is it you know, as, as as Susan was saying, why aren't there more prosecutions from the existing material? In the UK, we've got perhaps a couple of dozen people working with the Internet Watch Foundation, and it takes them perhaps six weeks to take down an offending website, whereas a bank wanting a phishing website taken down will have it done in six hours or so. So the amount of resource that's devoted to dealing with actual um, sex abuse is minuscule. And this, this is despite the fact that there are serious offences being committed. The serious offences against um, kids in our countries aren't so much the imagery offences, but things like sextortion, for which you would do entirely different things. And in the case of tech companies like Apple, the kind of things that you do to prevent sextortion are all resource intensive. Now, this is another aspect of the thing that needs uh, looking at, that Apple makes very, very few disclosures to NCMEC and spends very, very little money on content moderators compared with um, Microsoft or Google or Facebook. And if child protection is to be done properly, it costs money. Now, who's going to spend that money if governments don't want to? And big tech isn't prepared to spend more than a modest amount. That's the real question here. Ross, following up on that point, there was some speculation, although I, I don't think that we ever saw it verified, well, that maybe Apple was doing this because they were planning on encrypting iCloud. Again, not sure whether or not that's, that was ever true or contemplated, but, but I, I take it that your point is that it's still not worth it. Uh, well, from, from, from time to time, we see government blaming tech uh, and very often this is perhaps about blame shifting. For example, um, the last director of GCHQ but one talked himself into office uh, by making um, an outburst against Facebook, accusing Facebook of helping terrorists after there was a terrorist killing near Woolwich Barracks, Barracks in London. This, of course, didn't exactly endear him to people at Facebook whose reaction was something like, talk to our lawyers. So you have to ask about the motivation and strategy of officials who involve themselves in strategies like that. Just today, we've seen news that there's been a disclosure through a Freedom of Information Act request that the UK Home Office has allocated an advertising budget of £500,000 to campaign against uh, Facebook's introduction of end-to-end -end encryption in Facebook Messenger. And again, one might ask, what's the real purpose of this? Is it to divert attention from something? And over time, big tech becomes sensitive to this. And perhaps some of the technology decisions that are taken are taken in response to perceived near-term threats from governments who are posturing for various unrelated political reasons. So what's actually going on here may not be what appears to be going on. So to sum up, you both, along with a number of your co-authors, have been involved in the crypto wars or the going dark debate, not to date you, but for several decades now. And, and you make the very interesting statement in the paper that the proposal to preemptively scan all user devices for targeted content is far more insidious than earlier proposals for key escrow and exceptional access. Again, I, I found that to be a very stark statement given 
the history of both of your work and your your co-author's work over time on the going dark debate. Could you talk a little bit about what you meant and and why you have called client-side scanning a dangerous technology? Sure. So I'm going to quote you actually first from the Carnegie study, which says that security in the context of the encryption debate consists of multiple aspects, including national security, public safety, cybersecurity, and security from hostile or oppressive state actors. And the key is to determining how to weigh these competing security interests. But they're not all on one side. It's really a security versus security issue, the the encryption debate. Now, the encryption debate has been about whether or not people can secure their devices against somebody, law enforcement or, or a government, getting the device, opening it up, unlocking it and getting data off of it. The encryption debate has also been about whether or not there should be a backdoor to encrypted communications. The client-side scanning solution, and again, I will put that solution in huge quotes, the client-side scanning solution is about whether or not there should be a bulk surveillance tool put on everybody's phone. And everybody carries phones with them all around. When was the last time you saw a payphone anywhere? Everybody carries phones with them all the time. And so you move from, can we have targeted solutions to get at people's devices and people's communications to, how about we just build bulk surveillance into everybody's communications and data storage device? And we pulled out all the 1984 references from the paper because we think that that is a little bit hackneyed, but that specter is is standing right there. Well, Stephanie, I grew up during the Cold War. I grew up in Gurukh in the west of Scotland, where I could see a U.S. Polaris submarine base a couple of miles away out of my bedroom window. And thankfully, that's now passed. But during the Cold War, people were fairly clear of what we were standing up for and what the other side uh, was up to. We were standing for freedom and liberty and all these good things. Now, after a 30-year period in which um, America was the sole superpower, we're moving into another period of history where we're facing off against China, which is not merely a military challenge, but also an economic challenge, a cultural challenge, and a challenge in mechanisms of governance. Now, China is all for client-side scanning. Um, Some years ago, they introduced something called Green Dam, which had to be installed in everybody's PC, and it was claimed originally to be something that was there for the purposes of finding pornography, although when people tore it to pieces, they found that it was much more keen on finding references to Falun Gong, the Dalai Lama, and other such material. It also turned out that Green Dam had a vulnerability, which meant that somebody who knew this vulnerability could take over your PC from any website which you visited. Now, it's time to step back and say that, well, if we're going to be confronting China over the next 30 years on a variety of fronts, military, economic, political, and in the political sphere on issues of democracy and human rights, then what sort of technical architecture do we want to have? Do we want to simply adopt the same technological architecture as China? particularly if we're buying an awful lot of our stuff from China and we're both uh, living off globalized supply chains? Or do we want to see to it that we've got an architecture that's appropriate for our civilization and for our values? And as a dreadful warning, uh, if you give in to the temptation to collect everything on everybody, remember what happened to, to the Office of Personnel Management? They had all the clearance review data on all Americans who had worked for or applied to work for um, the federal government, intelligence agencies, and so on, all the embarrassing questions about whether you smoked dope as a teenager, whether you ever cheated on your wife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They put it on a computer in the Office of Personnel Management, and guess what happened? The Chinese stole the lot, right? So do we really want to build an architecture of pervasive surveillance as a preparation for Cold War 2.0, in which we are facing up against a power uh, that is different from us in a very large number of ways, particularly in its attitudes to freedom and to privacy. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you both very much for joining me.
Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And if you're feeling inspired, you can get Lawfare merchandise at the lawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.